If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. On the 23rd of January 1978, Baron Edouard Jean Ampin was snatched from the streets of Paris in an audacious kidnapping attempt. Before long, a ransom of 18 million francs was demanded. And to show that the kidnappers meant business, they chopped off the Baron's little finger, with the disturbing warning that more body parts would follow. And this wasn't the worst of it. In his new book, The Last Baron, Tom Sancton charts the two tangled months of the kidnapping case, which led to a bloody shootout and ultimately the fall of the industrial giant the Ompon dynasty. Emily Briffitt spoke to Tom to find out more. Tom, it's lovely to be chatting to you today. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, your new book, The Last Baron, follows the kidnapping of Baron Edouard Jean Ompin in 1978, but also charts the history of one of Europe's major industrial juggernauts. To start us off, can you run us through what happened? How did a baron come to be kidnapped? He was a very prominent member of the uh, of the French establishment. He was a, uh, an, an industrialist who was 
the head of uh, one of the one of the world's most powerful industrial groups that had activities in uh, you know banking, energy, transport, all sorts of things, especially nuclear energy. His company had a monopoly uh, on the construction of all the French uh, nuclear power plants. So he was a very prominent, important figure. His uh, his company was. Uh, was crucial to French economic and, and, and security interests. And so he was, uh, he was somebody who was, during this decade of the 1970s, when there was a whole wave of kidnappings, he was somebody who was a pretty logical target uh, for, for kidnapping. He was also perceived to be uh, fabulously wealthy. And the company, of course, had you know, sales up in the tens of billions of, of francs. So uh, the uh, kidnappers assumed they could make a quick killing with a... Uh, not, not literally killing, but killing with a, with a ransom, and uh, and so that's that's kind of how he he uh, was in the crosshairs of this uh, this group of, of kidnappers. So on the January twenty third, nineteen seventy eight, they launched the operation and very easily snatched him in front of his house as he got into his chauffeur driven car, and then that uh, that was the beginning of this whole this whole true crime caper. I'm going to jump back, as you say, to this true crime investigatory story. But you spoke about his company. I'd like to give us a bit of context, really situate the story. So can you explain what the Ampan Industrial Empire was and perhaps its significance in Europe at this time? Yeah, well, it was founded by his grandfather, uh, the first uh, Baron Ampan, and who was Belgian. He was born into a modest family in, in Belgium in uh, 1852. He was one of those remarkable figures like uh, J.D. Rockefeller or Cornelius B- Vanderbilt in the U.S., one of these self-made men who was uh, uh, actually driven by, uh, by, by ambition and, uh, uh, and vision and uh, created this industrial group that was uh, based on railroads, uh, transportation, energy, civil engineering, uh, and he built this empire little little by little and became very prominent in the building of railroads and, and uh, tramways. In fact, he, he built railroads uh, all over Europe and in parts of Asia. And uh, he became um, one of the founders of the uh, builders of the Paris Metro around 1900. And also, uh, well, he, he was into all sorts of things. He built this incredible, fantastic city on this desert of, of Egypt, north of, of Cairo, called Heliopolis, the City of the Sun. I mean, he created this, this whole city. He was one of these visionary, uh, driven uh, kind of international capitalists. And when he died in 1929, he was one of the world's wealthiest men. So his son uh, was uh, Jean Ampin, also known as Johnny. He took over the company. He was of kind of a, of a, of a different sort. He was uh, a hedonist. He was much more interested in throwing wild parties in his chateau and cruising the world on his, on his yacht than he was minding the store. But he was seconded by good uh, professional managers, and the company continued to, to grow and thrive. So by the time his son, which is our hero, the one uh, who, who was kidnapped and who was known to his friends as Wado. Okay, by the time Wado finally took over in the late 60s, the company was, was really essential to, to the French economy in, in, in a number of ways, and particularly through um, its monopoly of the creation of nuclear power plants. And so um, that's kind of, that's a, in a nutshell, kind of the, the, the story of the rise of this great industrial empire, which comprised 175 companies and employed about almost 150,000 people in a dozen different c- countries. So it, this was a pretty big deal, the Schneider in, uh, industrial empire. 
So I guess this really gives us a framing of why the kidnapping of Edouard would be significant. Yeah, well, it was significant uh, because of, of how important the group was to, to French economic interests and security interests. And also, he was a, he was a member of the French establishment. He was, he was half, half Belgian, half American, but actually his whole activity, his chateau, his company headquarters were all in Paris. So for all intents and purposes, he was a prominent member of the, the French establishment. He was a friend of the president, Giscard d'Estaing. And um, he was he was somebody whose survival was considered important, you know, to to French interests, not to mention to the interests of the group and the interest of his of his family, of course. And so uh, Giscard uh, ordered one of the biggest police investigations in French history and involved uh, 80 French detectives working pretty much around around the clock. So this was uh, it was a big deal. And uh, I was actually studying in France at the time. And I remember this. when this this news flash came and it was in, in in all the headlines and the French press went absolutely ballistic, you know, calling it the uh, the kidnapping of the century. On one level, it's a it's a police story and a you know manhunt, and on another level, it's it's really it's a saga about the the rise of this of, of this dynasty. There's so many things you mentioned there that I really like to pick on as we chat. But you were saying about how you actually found out about this story having studied in France. And I think one of the really interesting things about your book is actually the way you went about researching it. Can you tell us more about that side of things? Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was a very, it was a very interesting subject to research because it involved, I guess, two, two disciplines that I had learned. First, historical research, pure historical research. I have a, a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University. So my first discipline, my first training was uh, was in the methods of the of the historian, but also spent twenty years as a as a writer and correspondent for Time magazine, and much of that time as the bureau chief in in Paris. And so, the, the, there's a reportorial side of this too, which involved uh, the journalistic methods of particular interviews. And I was lucky enough to to get access to to people who were key play, had been key players in this thing. Well, I guess the the main one was the uh, the head kidnapper, the Alan Kyle, who actually organized this thing. And he's now eighty years old, a free man after spending decades in prison for for various capers. But he's a very uh, very interesting. He's very erudite. He's uh, he has a passion for books and and grand opera. He was born to a fairly wealthy family attended posh boarding schools and uh, really n- not at all the profile of your average average gangster. But he, early on, he embraced a life of crime as, as an act of revolt against his domineering father. And uh, that was, he launched a career as a bank robber and then f- finally ca- came up with this idea of um, hitting a big jackpot and retiring. The big jackpot was, th- was the ransom that they expected to get from kidnapping Baron Powell. He he was one figure, but the, but there were maybe four or five of the detectives who had been intimately involved in this story, uh, who talked to me. One one was uh, Andre Bizol, who had had kind of coordinated the whole the whole investigation. He was a, a kind of a hard drinking, uh, hard boiled cop who who moonlighted as a uh, as a crooner in a dance band. Uh, another one was Jean Magieri, was a Eurasian martial arts expert who was assigned to, to uh, immobilize the kidnappers with his bare hands when he when they they came to get the ransom then there was a uh, commissaire Boussard, leg- legendary figure in the in the history of uh, in the French police 
and also members of the family. Uh, Watto's uh, half-sister, Diane, was very helpful. His daughter, Patricia, was very helpful. So these, these are people that I could actually uh, meet and talk to and interview using the methods of, uh, of journalism. So with those two methods of historiography and, and journalism, I was able to put together a story which, which dealt on basically on two tracks, one with the kind of the tick-tock of the kidnapping and its aftermath, and the other, that whole multi-generational saga, corporate history, uh, the deeper backstory to the, to the kidnapping. There seems to be such a colourful cast of characters in this story. So with that, could you give us more detail on what actually happened? What is the kidnapping story? Okay, well, uh, what happened was on the morning of January 23rd, 1978, Baron Nompin, Wado, came out of his uh, posh apartment building and um, at 10.20, his usual time, and was met by his, his chauffeur, he got into the car, and uh, the car had uh, driven only a, a short distance before a, a motor scooter came around it and slid and fell over in front of it. And the chauffeur hit the brakes, said, you know, what's going on, honking his horn. Then a van pulled up behind the, the car and blocked it from behind, and there was another van parked just on the side of the road. And four or five men emerged from that from that van, and four people from the van behind it. So... Four of the kidnappers jumped into the car. They, they, they grabbed the chauffeur and threw him out, put him in another van. And then they, um, they jumped in two in front, two in back. They put a hood over Wado's head. They handcuffed him and put a gun to his head and said, do, do what we say or, or we'll blow your brains out. So that was the beginning. And then they, they drove off. They parked the car in a, in a parking garage and switched cars. Because at that time, they were in, they were in on Pan's own car when they grabbed him. So then they switched cars and took him, after nightfall, took him to a, um, a secluded spot in a, about, I guess, 20 miles north of Paris, in a, located in a forest, and it was an abandoned stone quarry. German occupiers had used it to, uh, to store V-2 rockets during the war. It was uh, just this warren of, of underground tunnels that had been abandoned. They had set up tents, you know, pup tents, and um, the wherewithal to, to stay uh, a few days. They expected it to last only a few days. So this uh, this tunnel into which Watto was uh, introduced was unheated. And so it's in January. It's just a few degrees above freezing. No electricity, obviously, no light, no heat. And he was blindfolded. So he's led into this tunnel, put in the in a tent. Uh, his uh, chain to the wall by a neck chain, and his hands and feet were were, chained, were also chained. And one of the kidnappers came and said, first of all, you always have to put on your blindfold when we approach you, because if you ever if you ever see us, we'll execute you immediately, because they didn't want to be identified. And then they said, and now we want you to read this document. And they showed him a typed document that they prepared that said that they were going to demand a ransom of 80 million francs, which is equivalent to about 70 million dollars today. They, they asked him for the name of uh, contact people at his company. And then they said that they were going to cut off his, his little finger to show they meant business. The first thing he said, he didn't say anything about the finger. He just said, well, you're, you're completely out of your minds. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have that kind of money uh, available. And I can't, whatever money I have, I can't free it up if I'm not there to sign papers. I can't, can't do it with a phone call. And so they said, you're just bluffing. We'll, we'll get around to that later. But 
they gave him a um, concoction to drink, which was kind of Valium and red wine, and uh, which put him to sleep eventually. And then they cut off his finger. They put it on a, a, a paper cutter, one of these guillotine-style paper cutters, put his finger under the blade, hit it with a mallet, and that was it. And put his finger in a little jar of formaldehyde, which they then took and deposited in his storage locker at, at the Gare de Lyon, the railroad station, along with some of his identity papers and a letter demanding this ransom. And so the next day, one of his colleagues got a phone call saying, okay, go to locker number whatever at the Gare de Lyon and you'll find a little surprise. And so he went there with, with a policeman. They find this thing, ransom note, the finger, ID papers, and they realized that these guys, A, they held Watto, and B, they were ruthless, and they meant business, and they threatened to send other body parts unless the, the ransom was paid immediately. So that was that was how the whole thing started. What was the law enforcement's response to this? Surely, finger in a locker is going to send send off some alarms. How did they react? Well, they they were very concerned. One of the detectives told me that he, that they really expected that, that it was quite possible that they would be receiving, you know, a hand or a foot or you know, an ear or something. The the police were very concerned. I mean, it's a very important man. Giscard d'Estaing, the president, was putting pressure on the police to, to try to find him immediately, make sure no harm came to him. The police chief, a man named Pierre Ottavioli, who was a legendary figure in French law, law enforcement, he was actually in, in Los Angeles visiting friends at the time. Uh, he didn't get back for a few days. When he did come back, he organized this team, as I said, of 80, 80 detectives, and they were working around the block. But they had very few clues at first because the kidnappers were professional. In one sense, they were like, they were not that bright. They were, they were like the Keystone cops in one sense, but they had professional methods like not leaving fingerprints and things, things like that. So the police immediately had no clues and there were no witnesses. There were virtually no eyewitnesses. All this this took place in broad daylight, right, right on a, a major thoroughfare. So the French and the, the the French police in the beginning were stymied. They were actually uh, absolutely stymied. They had, you know, the police have informants. They have a whole network of people in the in the underworld. They tapped their informants. Nobody knew anything. They received a lot of tips, anonymous tips, phone calls, uh, letters, claiming to to know something about the case. But uh, but all that led to to nothing. So. For a long time, they just they just came up empty. But one of the, the key aspects of the police response was that the police chief, Pierre Ottavioli, insisted that no ransom be paid. Because in the beginning, the family wanted to pay the ransom and get him get him back. And they realized they didn't have they didn't have that much money uh, available. Ompa owned a lot of stock, but he didn't have a huge pile of cash sitting in the bank. The company, the the industrial group, the people who were uh, running it in Wado's absence, they didn't want to just pay it straight out. They offered to lend money to the family at a not particularly generous rate rate of interest. And so initially, after the first few days, they were the family was able, and the colleagues were able to get together a thirty million francs instead of eighty million. There was a phone call, contact with the kidnappers, and the kidnappers said, "Do you have the money?" The interlocutor on the other side said. Well, we have thirty million, not a not a cent more. And the kidnapper said, "Well, tomorrow you will have a cadaver," and hung up. So that was the, the end of any attempt to actually pay the ransom. So, as I said, the police chief Ottavioli 
who arrived from, from the U.S. a couple of days later said, absolutely no ransom. We will not pay a ransom. In many cases, when a ransom is paid, they, they still leave a body by the, the roadside. He had a different idea. He would concoct a fake ransom using uh, pages of a telephone book cut in the size of uh, Swiss banknotes, shrink-wrapped with real banknotes on the top and bottom of each packet, but basically it's, it's all paper. And it filled two sports bags weighed about 50, uh, 50 kilos, and he was going to lure the kidnappers into a trap, into an ambush, uh, with the promise of these this ransom, which was, as I say, a fake ransom. That was basically what the French response was initially, not panic, but a very intense concern for Wado's uh, safety and a lot of frustration because they were they didn't have any good leads in the beginning and didn't really know where to look. But I think the key thing was the police chief said, well, okay, we will lure them uh, with the promise of a fake ransom and try to capture at least one of them as a counter hostage. So once you have a counter, once you have a hostage, then you can use that hostage to put pressure on his Confederates to release the Baron. So that, that was basically the police game game plan. And, and in the end, it worked. How were the kidnappers actually found out and caught in the end then? That's, that's a, one of the most interesting parts of the, of the whole story. There were eight of them. Uh, it was really a motley crew. They were, they were car thieves, pimps, drug pushers, some uh, brighter than others. Kyle himself was you know, the, the organizer. He was, uh, as I said, erudite, smart, cultured. Some of them were, were really kind of lowbrow criminal types. So what happened was there was a rendezvous on a French highway the A6 highway south of Paris. And two of the kidnappers showed up to get the ransom. Well, as I said, it was actually a fake ransom, but it was delivered by the martial arts expert, Jean Magieri, that I mentioned, the Eurasian martial arts expert. And his, assign- his assignment was at the moment where they, they met up to, to hand off the, the ransom, he would immobilize them with his hands. because He, he told me that he, he could have immobilized up to five or six people at once by just quick moves and just what he knew how to what he knew how to do but what happened when when he showed up uh the Mazieri showed up with the fake ransom in his car he was supposed to uh retrieve a message he'd been through a whole scavenger hunt you know that the, they were sending him all over the place he was re- supposed to retrieve a message about exactly how to meet the kidnappers and just he pulled off to the side of the road and then a uh a tow truck pulled up behind him thinking he he was you know, he needed to be uh, taken to a garage and that he was, you know, his car was, was, uh, had broken down. Uh, so Mazieri got out to wave away the tow truck. And at that point, Kyle and one other man, Daniel Duchateau, the uh, co-organizer of the, of the kidnapping, kind of jumped over from the top of a wall, jumped into Mazieri's car who, who, where he'd left the key. And they go driving off because, thinking, okay, well, the ransom's in the back and uh, we can just sort of drive off and disappear in this car. But he didn't realize that they were surrounded by a whole flotilla of police uh, cars that were unmarked. You know, they were like uh, postal vans, ambulances, taxis and everything. And so they were, they were very quickly cut off and there was a shootout. Kyle was badly wounded. His colleague, uh, Daniel Duchateau, was, was killed. And so that was how Kyle was captured. So Kyle was then uh, taken to uh, a hospital, at the, kind of the, what they call the jailbird wing of, the, uh, uh, of this hospital, where people who were under 
police control were treated. And the police basically uh, exfiltrated him to police headquarters, and they started working on him, telling him that if anything happened to the Baron, his head could roll, because France still had capital punishment at that time. It was, it was only, only abolished two or three years later, and they still used the guillotine. So he made a call to the people who were holding Wano and said to release him. And basically, that's, that's how he got released. So Duchateau is dead. Kyle is apprehended. And the French, the, the police were able to, to trace the number that, that Kyle had telephoned where the, the Baron had been kept uh, incarcerated. And so by tracing that, they, they went and, and found this, this house. Uh, it was, had been abandoned by them, but they found all sorts of information, uh, photographs, plane tickets, and, and the, the place had been rented in the name of brother-in-law of one of the kidnappers. And it, basically, they, they were able to then follow the trail with br- pretty brilliant police work from the point where they identified that, that house and were able to recover documents, names, and they would just kind of work their way through from, from one, uh, one to the other. And within, I'd say, eight months, they had, they had actually um, rounded up all, all, all of the eight suspects. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In a way, I wouldn't say it was inevitable that he would be a target, but it kind of w- was logical that somebody like, like Wado in that era, in that position, was likely to become a, a target. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. 
and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. It's an incredible story between, like say, amputated fingers to shootouts to martial artists getting involved in the police investigation. It's crazy. How did the press and the public react to this story? Oh well, the press, uh, the press went, as I said, went ballistic in the in the beginning. You know, it was just this this sensational story: the Baron Empire kidnapped, and then they followed. There was not that much news that came after because for a long time the police were stymied and there was just nothing to report. You know, it's like uh, you know, all quiet on the Western Front, and so um, after a while, the press sort of relegated the story to sort of the inside pages. But one of the things that was really important about the information that that leaked out in the press was information about Wado's personal life, because he was a a high-stakes gambler. He was really addicted, addicted to high-stakes gambling. And he had mistress, one mistress in particular, but he had several mistress, and he had a a garçonniere, a little private apartment in Paris where he would meet his, his lady friends. And somehow or other... It, this leaked into the press. And this was absolutely devastating for his, his image because uh, up until that point, he was considered, you know, this uh, major, major industrialist, a key figure in the French establishment, uh, an aristocrat. Well, he, he wasn't really an aristocrat. He, his grandfather had gotten a title from the Belgian king because he was just his recognition of his achievements as an industrialist. So all of a sudden his image is tarnished and destroyed by these revelations about, I mean, he had millions and millions in gambling debts. And of course, in France, it's probably maybe not the end of the world if you're found out uh, to have a mistress, but it, it all added up to something that really tarnished his image. And the thing about the gambling also spurred speculation that he may have been had his finger cut off for unpaid gambling debts, which is something that that happened, you know, the mafia was known to do. And there was a, some sense that his his presence in the casinos and the you know, very high-stakes gambling that he did had attracted the attention of criminal elements and maybe was the reason why he he'd been chosen as a as a target. Anyway, the press revelations about his private life were absolutely devastating and and had had major consequences for him after his his liberation. How did this image tarnishing affect his family's legacy as well? Well, it was uh, obviously devastating to the to the family's image, the family's image of him, the family's relationship to him. When once once he was released, I mean, he thought that he was going to be you know people throwing confetti from the balconies and you up champagne, you know, finally Baron Empire is free. Uh, and he got a very cold reception from his wife and his his family. He said uh, at one point, and he wrote this in his memoir, that uh, he basically went from one prison to to another. One prison was where he was incarcerated, and the other prison was the life that he that he emerged into, where he realized he was not he was not free to live the life he he had lived before. His wife divorced him. He was alienated from his children, more or less. And the worst thing that happened was that the people who ran the company, particularly number the number two who ran the company in his absence, a man named Rene Ingen, 
basically told him that he should basically re- remove himself from the leadership, at least temporarily, because it, it, it was bad for the image of the company, that uh, shareholders uh, were, were not pleased at all to find out, out about this, this, these huge gambling debts. And so he took, he took a temporary leave. He came, took one of his mistresses and came to the U.S. and stayed several months and considered even uh, just kind of re- relocating to America and starting his life over again. Uh, ultimately, he went back, kind of had this confrontation with his, his number two and said he was taking, taking over the company again. Uh, that lasted a short while, but it, was, it became apparent to him that uh, it wasn't going to work. And so he sold, he was forced basically by circumstances to sell out his one-third share in the, in the group that his grandfather had, had founded and was no longer part of the group. And within a few years, the, the whole Ampan group had been, was kind of sold off, spun off in bits and pieces, and the Ampan name disappeared. That was really the end of this, this Ampan industrial dynasty that was founded by the, the grandfather. And uh, it was really the kidnapping and the revelations about Onpan's private life that that led to this really tragic end for him. It was really like I I say the arc of his rise and fall is is akin to a a Greek tragedy. So that was, well, to a large extent, the consequence of all this information that came out in the press and ultimately tarnished his image to the point where his life was, uh, was never the same again. Very sad story, really. So how did this affect the family more widely? The family uh initially the, they had different reactions to to the to the kidnapping and, and the ransom demand in the beginning. He had two daughters, one uh, Patricia who was I think 19 or 20 years old at the time, married to an, to an American and she was nine 6 months pregnant at the time. Christine was uh her younger sister, I think 2 years younger. And they had a brother, Jean-François, who was, I think, about 13 years old at the time. He was off at boarding school, and he, he wasn't so directly involved. But the two girls, they just they wanted their daddy back. And they said, well, whatever it takes, you know, let, let's just sell off a few companies. And they didn't realize that, you know, having a preponderant share in the, in the, in the group did not mean that he owned all 175 companies, that he could just sell a company and take the money and pay off the ransom and that was that. So they they were very uh, they were very disturbed and and confused. They just didn't understand how how they couldn't come up with the money. The wife Silvana, who was Italian, she had no clue about about his business affairs. She didn't she didn't really he, she was not she kind of enjoyed being wealthy, being the baroness and everything, but she she didn't really know at all what was uh what his business consisted of and how you know the details of the uh the industrial group. She thought she thought that if she sold her jewelry collection, maybe that would help, which was sweet, but it was it was not going to get up to uh, eighty million francs. His mother was a real piece of work. The mother was American. Uh, her name was uh, Roselle Roland. She grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and she was a former exotic dancer, a stripper, if you will. Wado's father, Jean Ompin, the, the playboy hedonist uh, son of the founder, caught her act in London at the Dorset Hotel in 1935 and, and was absolutely smitten by her and kind of whisked her away on his, his yacht. And um, two years later, she gave birth to a son who was Watto, the fu- future kidnapping victim. And so from having been a stripper, he married her and she became a, a baroness. And she was a, she was a very uh, scheming, self-centered, cold 
figure, uh, showed no affection uh, for for anybody. She was um, really kind of an odious person in a lot of ways. Well, to cut back to these discussions w- within the family about how to deal with the kidnapping, she said, well, I, I won't pay a cent, you know. I'm not going to give a cent. She had a lot of money. She said, what, if he comes back, he'll have the money. But she refused to to pay. So there was this really horrible argument within the family. She thought it was good for him. She thought that it would take him down a peg because he was he was arrogant and just a bit too haughty for her taste. She thought this would be a humbling experience. She never thought anything would happen to him. And she wasn't particularly worried about him. Uh, so th- that was kind of the immediate reaction of the family. And afterwards, when he was when he was liberated, under the cloud of these these revelations, the children were basically estranged from him. It really destroyed the family. It broke up the family. There was also a, a half sister, Diane, because Goldie, after after her husband died, took up with a famous French jockey. They had a, a love child named Diane, who was Wado's half-sister. And Diane became uh, one of my key sources years later. She remained close to Wado uh, to the end, maybe the one who was closest to him. And uh, she, she stuck by him all to the end. He, he actually, he, he never, never licked a gambling habit, and it really it ruined him. All the money he gotten from selling his stock basically just kind of dwindled uh, through his, his gambling. He was forced to sell the family chateau. He lived in a kind of handsome uh, manor house near on the, on the former chateau grounds, but he was just completely uh, immersed in debt. He would, borrow, he would borrow money from his friends and not pay it back. And um, I mean, he, at the end, he was virtually penniless. His, his sister, Diane, stuck by him to the end. And in fact, she's the one who took him to the hospital when he finally collapsed from various ailments. Uh, that was really uh, the end of him at age, at age 80. But uh, it is a sad story. I mean, I, I call it a Greek tragedy, but in the sense that it's the, it's the fall of a, of a powerful person, partly due to his, to his own flaws. Because if what really happened to him, which really derailed his life, was not the kidnapping per se, but the revelations about his, his own flaws. And that's that was really the chink in his armor, and that's that's what ultimately uh, led to his ruins. You've spoken about this story offering a panorama of life at this time. What can this story tell us about the wider context of France, and I guess Europe more widely? Because we've got ties to Belgium here as well. One thing is that uh, during this decade, it, it, it was a decade. It was called, called the decade of lead. It was a decade in which there was just a tidal wave of, of kidnappings, many of them uh, political. This one was not political. Some thought initially it was the radicals, you know, taking taking this capitalist, uh, snatching this capitalist, and uh, maybe assassinating him. But it was it, it was not that. But there were many other kidnappings at the time that were political. The, the head of the German. Uh, Employers Union, Hans Martin Schleyer, was kidnapped and assassinated by the Red Brigades just a couple of months before Roboto. Aldo Moreau, the former Italian prime minister, was was kidnapped by the Red Brigades and assassinated um, a few months after Watto, after Watto's liberation. So what one one thing it says 
about the the, the 1970s is that was, this was a period of, uh, of of violence, of kidnappings, of political violence. One thing that's interesting is that the police response to to Wado's kidnapping, the, the adamant refusal to pay to pay the ransom, and the fact that the kidnappers were all rounded up, it ended very badly for them. This actually virtually put an end to this spate of kidnappings in France, at least. More broadly, I think it's it says something about uh, the 1970s, you know, the, the kind of the the image of, of, of capitalism, of capitalists. There was, the, there was the, you know, 1968, it was this big upheaval in France and, and elsewhere, kind of this youth revolt against uh, the establishment and uh, basically uh, against people like, like Wado. That had settled down by then, but they, they were still, France was still living in the kind of the wake of, of 1968. And uh, this uh, the sense that uh, people like people like Watto were considered by many, many people, particularly obviously on the left, as, uh, you know, part of the establishment, the bad establishment that they, that they were opposed to. It was also, in a major sense, the end of an era. It was the end of the de Gaulle era. You know, de Gaulle... Um, Survived the uh, revolt of '68, but in '69 he resigned. In 1970 he, he died, and so that was really the the end of this uh, this era, the beginning of the Fifth Republic in France uh, under the domination of, of Charles de Gaulle. And so um, it was also a period. Uh, his successor, uh, Georges Pompidou, was uh, a collector of modern art. It, he was uh, somebody who wanted to really remake the urban face of Paris and did to some extent. The face of Paris was really changing during this period. And also um, the importance of nuclear energy in, in France because of the, uh, the oil shock in 1973 you know, forced the French to, to kind of rethink their energy policy. And they opted per, pretty much an, on all nuclear energy policy. And Enpin's company was selected to, to build all those, those power plants. So this is an, another aspect of this era. And also, and more broadly, there was, it was a lot of change in uh, French society. You know, it was kind of the, dis- the disco era and uh, beginnings of certainly a, a liberation of sexual culture, the beginnings of the co- coming out of, of, of gay culture. I mean, it was, a, it was a period of, I think, an important period of transition in many, many ways, the 1970s in, in France, in Europe in, in general. And uh, this is a context in which Wado's kidnapping took, took place. It could have happened maybe in, in another era, but the fact that this was a time of political violence, this wave of kidnappings, and in a way, I wouldn't say it was inevitable that he would be a target, but it, it kind of w- was logical that somebody like, like Wado in that era, in that position, was likely to become a, a target of political violence and, uh, you know, kidnapping and uh and so that, that's, that's the context in which, in which it happened. That was author Tom Sankton. His book, The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire, is out now published by Dutton. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. 
From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.